Welcome to the Janine Boland Show, where we share tips from around the globe as we guide practical people with their finances using money tips, increase their incomes through side businesses, and maintain their sanity by staying in their creative zone. Hello, Janine Boland here, and welcome to today's show, where we bring you quality content on saving your time, saving your money, saving your knowledge while staying sane in the topsy-turvy world that is ours? Or is that whole staying sane part already a lost cause? (laughs) The Janine Janine Boland Show is a syndicated program of four podcast shows that were combined in October of 2021. It was the three-minute money tips, the thriving solopreneur, the writer's hour, creative conversations, and the practical mystic show. These were all programs that had been running since 2017. We've produced over 300 episodes, interviewed over 200 guests, and today we will be spotlighting lighting one of our authors that is contributing to our 12th book, The 99 Authors Project. So today's guest is award-winning double-digit book author, Shell Horowitz, author of Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World, which is endorsed by Seth Godin, along with Jack Canfield of Chicken Soup for the Soul fame, along with many others. He's a TEDx speaker and is known as the transformpreneur since his, he helps businesses develop and market products that make a profit and a difference to their communities. He was inducted into the National Environmental Hall of Fame and was the first business to ever be Green America Gold certified as he bakes in that profitability while addressing hunger, poverty, war, and catastrophic climate change. Thanks so much for being with us today, Shell. Oh, it's a pleasure to Okay, so what I wanted to talk to you about right off the bat is you are one of those amazing double-digit book authors, meaning you have more than 10, and that you have been writing since 1980, which means you are a veteran of the publishing world. So talk to us a little bit about the first book that you published and some of the story behind that, like what even got you into publishing, dude? Well, it was a funny story. All of the books have funny stories. So I was working as a manuscript reader in 1979 for a literary agent in New York named Richard Curtis. And Richard had co-authored a book called Perils of the Peaceful Atom, all about what a terrible idea nuclear power is. And I had used that book for a college term paper that I wrote. Uh, on nuclear power, uh, pros and cons, and discovered through his book and several others that there weren't actually any pros and there were a lot of cons. And he knew of my interest in the subject and he knew that I was actually writing a column for the local Pacifica radio station's monthly folio on why nuclear power was no good. And then Three Mile Island hit. And he says to me, I just got a contract to revise that old thing. Um, Do you want to take it on for me? And I said, yeah. <laughs> so there I was 22 years old and I started writing this book. I had six weeks or nine weeks, some very short time that I had to turn it around. And it came out the following year in 1980. And lo and behold, I was a published author. And this was even more amazing to me because I was working at the time as a Vista volunteer in New York City, making $82 a week. So all of a sudden I had an actual advance <laughs> to play with. And uh, There I was, a published author at a ridiculously young age and uh, writing about a subject that was near and dear to my heart. And from there, I went and did a bunch of books on marketing, uh, general small business marketing at first. And then for the last, really since 2003, so almost 20 years now, 
focusing on marketing for green and social change and ethical businesses and how they could actually become more profitable by addressing things like hunger, poverty, war, catastrophic climate change, racism in their core products and services and not just with philanthropy add-ons. So it was a pretty cool ride. And that's one of the things I definitely wanted to talk to you about is the, you know, publishers used to give you advances and that <laughs> ship has sailed, right? Yeah. Unless you're already a million book author, or unless you already have a huge following, you, you're just not going to see advances uh, in this day and age. And so I wanted to chat with you a little bit about the seed change that both you and I have experienced from around about 1998 to 2002, when the world experienced vanity publishing. Remember, they used to call it vanity publishing. You were so vain that you were publishing yourself, right? <laughs> well, now it's, there have been two big shifts in that time. One was that the big publishers basically lost all interest in what is called the mid-list author, people like me, who are not blockbuster bestsellers, but who sell steadily and whose books are well-respected. So the last advance I actually got for a book was in 2010 when I did my first guerrilla marketing book um, with John Wiley and Sons as the publisher, one of the big New York publishers. And I got my half of the advance that I had to share with my much more famous co-author, Jay Conrad Levinson, was $15,000. And that was actually the best advance I've ever got. But I did get advances on most of the books that I traditionally published. The most recent one, the advance was a pittance, uh, so low that it, it doesn't even really count as an advance. It was just something the publisher could say, yes, we paid you in advance, but it was in the three digits. <laughs> it was so, into the hundreds instead of the thousands. <laughs> yeah. I don't even really count that as having had an advance for that book. But the other big shift, as you hinted at, was the evolution of the writer taking the reins of the publishing horse and either self-publishing truly or going through one of the so-called self-publishing houses, which are really an extension of what used to be called Vanity Press, um, where you are paying the publisher to bring out your book. Uh, it's different from the Vanity Press model in that number one, they all use print on demand. So you're not sitting with 10,000 books in a garage or a warehouse somewhere, which is a good thing. <laughs> and, Another way they're different is that the costs are much lower. Those old places like Vantage were charging $10,000 to $50,000 to bring out a book. And with the current POD publishers, print-on-demand publishers, you can get away with doing a book for just a few hundred. So it's democratized the whole thing, which has its good things and its bad things. On the positive side, it means that if you have something to share with the world, there's no barrier anymore. You can share it with the world. On the bad side, it means that a lot of people who really shouldn't be sharing their message because they don't know how to write or they haven't thought through their, their thesis or it's just a horrible screed about how bad some targeted group is, they're also publishing and you have to compete with them. So the, the readers per book has gone way down. And that's something I think a lot of people don't realize. Many, many, many more books are published and hardly anybody reads them. Yeah, I know. I keep hearing that, but yet I still have readers. You know what I mean? We hear the, and that's what, but that's what I mean is like, we keep hearing about, oh, there's so many books published, so many books published. But the thing is, is we now have the world. It used yeah. to be, we were segmented, but especially if you publish in English, there are 
so many more markets than we've ever had. And there are now 8 billion people on the planet. So you yeah. don't need as much market share, yeah. you know, that, as we used to. So you're absolutely right on all your points. And then I'm, I'm just playing devil's advocate here. But it's like, as an author, I still have a core list of readers I can reach out to and say, hey, who will beta read my book? Mm -hmm. And it's amazing the response I get. So, you know, the thing is, is maybe overall, uh, the, the, the market share isn't what it used to be, but at the same time, it's never been a better time to have raging fans. And so Shell's yeah. going to talk to us a, a little bit more. Uh, yeah. And, about that. Yeah. Kevin Kelly talked about, you need a thousand of them. And I think actually you can make an impact with far fewer than that. Um, but it's not so much a matter of market share, but there are, I forget now how many hundreds of thousands of books are coming out every year or two. It's just some ridiculously large number, but it's a question of reaching the right people. And as you pointed out, the global reach is much bigger. So like I've got a guy in Cameroon who will buy anything I write. <laughs> exactly. So when I published with Simon and Schuster or even Wiley, I didn't have readers in Cameroon. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, that was the thing. I had Italians. I had people that were in Italy buying my book. And little did I know, it was a little English bookstore out in the middle of nowhere, you know, rural Italy that oh, was wow. canvassing and uh, a person had brought in my book. This is back in 2005. And, you know, you, you got really excited back in 2005. You're like, whoa, I'm in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. I mean, it, after 2020, uh, that, that all bets are off. But, you know, that was the, the big thing at that time. So talk to me a little bit. I, I'm, I'm going to get to some of the questions we love asking authors such as yourself, especially because of your versatility and the length of time you've been in the industry. Just out of curiosity, did you have any kind of marketing background before you started writing your books? A little. I, I've been a marketer since I was 15, and I've been an activist since I was 12, and I've been a writer since somewhere also around age 15. So um, I got into marketing because of activism, because I wanted to promote the causes I was involved with more effectively. So I learned uh, enough about PR to be maybe dangerous and stupid. And I started writing articles to promote the causes that I was involved with in the 70s as a high school student. And the funny thing is my first publications were in a right-wing underground newspaper at my high school. And I have always been on the progressive side of politics and they would run my stuff with disclaimers. This does not represent the views of the management, but they would run my stuff. And the <laughs> newspaper would not because I was not in the journalism class. So I, I began to see, okay, there's a market here that is not what I thought it was. And it wasn't a paying market. I didn't get paid for a piece of writing until quite a bit later than that. But they were publishing my reports on demonstrations against the Vietnam War and that sort of thing. And um, that principle continued. I, in, as a college student, I was involved in some LGBT stuff. And we were having a running fight with the editors of the local paper that didn't want to print our meeting notices. But they would print stories about the controversy. So we would meet with them and they'd run a story about the meeting and anybody with a brain could figure out how to call the college switchboard and, and get a hold of us. Right. So we, that's uh, another side of marketing that I got exposed to very early that was really different. And so if they, I won't, if they won't run it, then just invite them to the meetings. 
and, and they gave us great coverage of, of what we were talking about in these meetings and why they were resisting our meeting notices. And yeah, we got a few people from 20 miles around coming in and saying, hey, we didn't know you were here. That's great. That's it's fabulous. Like, um, uh, I'm just going to show you the mountain over there, which is a state park. Can you see that? Uh, we're audio only. Oh, okay. This is a podcast. I will not do so, this that's okay. Uh, hey, Brian, if you will cut the last section and then we're going to start with question number five, which is what most surprised you about book marketing process here in a sec. And if you will cut this out for us, thank you so much. Tell the story without the video, the prop, um, because there was a mountain next to the state park behind my house. And that mountain was targeted by a developer to put 40 McMansions going up to the ridge line. And we ended up calling the developer our fundraising chair, our honorary fundraising chair, because he was quoted in the paper as saying he didn't mind ruining his own view and the view of everybody else because he was going to make a lot of money. And we watched $1,000 in small donations come into our PO box over the next week. So I, all of this is pieces of the, the marketing story that you don't necessarily hear from traditional marketers. Exactly. It's just depending upon what your area of expertise happens to be in and how to take that controversial topic and make it work for you rather than against you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well done. Uh, so what most surprised you about the book marketing process and publishing a book rather than what you had experienced in the past with your activism? Well, how different it really is from marketing anything else. I took the marketing skills from activism. I started a consultancy as a copywriter and marketing consultant, and I still do that work. And most of the rest of the business world works on very different models than publishing. Books are really treated differently in the marketplace. And one of my principles is that market share is less of an issue in the book industry than it is in a lot of other places, because like, okay, if I buy a car, I'm not going to buy another one next Tuesday. If you are a golfer or a cook or a marketer, the chances are good that if you have at least one book on your shelf in your subject area, you're going to have 20 or 50 or 100. It's what is called an elastic market. Whereas the car is much more inelastic market because you don't need to buy a car every week. But if you're an avid reader and you can't stop reading books about your field of interest and you wanna be a better golfer or a better cook or a better marketer or a better activist, you're gonna be reading and you're gonna be buying. So that's one big difference. But on the other hand, you've got just the weirdest distribution system ever where nothing is really sold until it's been out of the store for several months and you don't know how much is going to come back unsaleable full of coffee stains and uh, coming out of the money that you thought you were going to be making. So that's one of the other drivers, I think, for the whole self-publishing and POD revolution is that that goes bye-bye. Uh, what you're talking about is when we used to have to ship books to a bookstore, and if they didn't sell them, they would rip off the front cover so they couldn't be sold, and then we would get those books shipped back. That's what Shell's talking about. For those of you who have published after 2010. <laughs> this might sound really weird. <laughs> right, and you're like, say what? No, no, print on demand has been delightful. 
for authors. It has its drawbacks, but uh, for me as an individual, it is something that was very, uh, it allowed me to do what I, what I could do today. And um, you, sure you make less per copy, but you're not sitting on inventory. You're not spending a huge amount of money on printing. The only people for whom I would recommend at this point doing a traditional print run is either you have pre-sold X number of books. And so, okay, do X, X plus a thousand and that's your print run. Uh, let's say you've, you've pre-sold 5,000 books. So you print 6,000. You figure there's a pretty good chance you'll get rid of that other thousand and you will pay less per book. But then once those are gone, you probably want to switch to on-demand printing. And even if it costs you twice as much as copy uh, per copy, you're going to come out ahead. And the other people are those doing fancy full color coffee table books. Uh, those people should be printing in print runs because they want to be printing offset for quality reasons. And in order to print offset and make any money at all, at all you have to print a decent enough number of copies to bring those very, very high per page per copy costs for full color down to something manageable. And that means a bigger print run. Everybody else should be doing POD. Right. And so on to our next question, what would you change if you started marketing your books today. So with everything that you know, what are some of the changes that you've made in your own marketing uh, tactics that have worked well for you? Well, it's, I feel like I did a lot of things right that didn't work. They've worked for my clients, but haven't worked so well for myself. So some of the things that I did really right uh, 15, 20 years ago, which sold a reasonable number of books don't work anymore. So I would say I would really wanna be probably hiring somebody who was good at Instagram and Snapchat and the other social media that I don't necessarily do. I do Facebook, LinkedIn, and a little bit on Twitter. And I really don't do any other social media. And I'd probably put more of a presence there. I've always been a fan, and I think this still holds true of partnering with other people. And the magic question I ask my consulting clients is in whose interest can your success be? So once you answer that, you know who you should approach and you know how you should approach them because you want to approach them in a way where they feel they're going to come out ahead. And it's not just, oh, please help me sell my book. It's like, well, if you take this book on, you're going to open up your entire base to this other kind of service that you can sell them or whatever it is. It's going to be very situational, very individual. So what worked like when we talk about the process of selling books and all that you have so many decades of experience so you can pick from whatever decade you want to talk about this but what process did you try that was like an epic failure in selling your books every every author has that horror story and the reason i'm asking for those is because we learn from each other i mean sure. I, that's why i love writers conferences is because you'll have people running around saying whatever you do don't hire xyz they don't know what they're doing like you know we share that information to help protect our fellow authors from because our we understand our profit margin is not what it used to be so what was what was your story on that so my epic fail was really funny uh, i published back in 1995 a book on having fun cheaply called the penny pinching hedonist i self-published it it was my i guess my second self-published book and out of five and I decided I was going to do a big press thing naming Henry David Thoreau as the first penny-pinching hedonist and going to his gravesite in Concord, Mass, which is about a two-hour drive from me, on his birthday to read selections from Walden that proved my point. 
And I sent out press releases to like every paper in Massachusetts. And I even did phone follow-up and I got there, not one reporter, about three people who happened to be in the graveyard for other reasons. And uh, <laughs> boom, <laughs> nothing. Total disaster. <laughs> I reported that incident on a publishing discussion list that I was active on the time. And Joe Vitale, Mr. Fire, major marketer featured in the movie, The Secret, happened to be on that list and happened to see that post and wrote back to me and said, I want to feature that story. It's such a great story, even if it didn't work. And so we built a relationship. He has sent me some clients over the years. He charges considerably more money than I do to write a press release. So if he's going to hit somebody who's he's out of their budget, he might send them to me. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've we've stayed cordial over all these years as he became a superstar. And uh, so even out of the epic failure, there can be good to be harvested. So when it comes, that's one of the things I love about doing these interviews is the fact that we share our epic failures with each other and all that fun stuff. But I also like to share the fun, which is what story do you tell about yourself that gets the most laughs from your target audience? Because we've all had to get up and speak about our books and tell stories on ourselves. Okay, this was when I was hawking one of my straight line small business marketing books called Marketing Without Megabucks that was published also in 1995 by Simon and & Schuster. And I was doing a speech to a bunch of building contractors and they met in a divey bar in a city about 20 minutes away. And I went down there looking around and I threw away the introduction to my speech. And the first thing I said to them was, how many of the contractors here have used the men's room tonight? And show of hands. And then I said, how many of those, how many of you saw the marketing opportunity in that decrepit bathroom for a contractor? And after that, I could say anything I wanted to them. I had them. Yep, exactly. You knew you hit them right where they were living, so to speak. Yep, exactly. Yeah. So what's the biggest change that you've seen in yourself since you started marketing your own books? Well, I'd say I've got greater confidence. I obviously have greater credibility. Books are amazing door openers. The money in a book is not in the book itself. In fact, my co-author, Jay Conrad Levinson, the founder of the Guerrilla Marketing brand, always used to say that he made a million dollars on the original Guerrilla Marketing book, but only 30,000 of it was from the actual book. And the rest was speaking and consulting and uh, retreats and this, that, and the other thing. So that's one thing is that having 10 books under my belt, I've also gotten to the point where for the last 15 years, I've been helping other people make that journey, and particularly authors with a socially conscious business story to tell. So I've become a book shepherd and I was kind of forced into it by a, a marketing client. He insisted that I knew enough to help him. And I discovered he was right. But I, I thought, oh, no, go get somebody who knows this. But uh, now I've produced a whole lot of books for other writers and it, it's always a good feeling I've got two that are coming out next year that I did not write and uh, it, it's deeply satisfying to watch somebody go properly through this process it's a as you know it's a minefield there's lots of wrong turns and potholes you can fall into so having an expert to guide you through is really a useful thing and I'm glad that I've reached the point where I can claim to be that expert if you're the right person for me to work with. Right. I agree with you. It helps to have somebody who's ahead of you on the trail to be a bit of a guide, because like you say, there's a lot of places that are blind ends for you. 
So what are the top five tips that you'd give an author that was selling their books today? What, what are some tips you'd I give? I took them? notes on this one ahead. So the first one is to know your audience and your goals for the book and write for those things and people right from the beginning. And obviously the way you determine that is to some degree market research and market research is one of those things that's gotten really easy and democratized because of the internet. So it's really easy to put together a focus group and uh, ask for beta readers and, and to say, which of these titles do you like? Which of these covers do you like? And really shape it. I, uh, when I was doing my first book on the socially conscious side of marketing, I thought I was going to call it win-win marketing. And the feedback when I said, what do you think of this subtitle? The feedback I got very quickly and very strongly from a lot of people I trust and respect was, you don't have your main title yet. So I listened to them and I took three months or four months to come up with the right title. And then I finally decided I was gonna ask Jimmy Carter, former president of the United States and known for his strong ethics for an endorsement. And once I figured that out, it took me three minutes to come up with the title and subtitle because I knew exactly who I was writing it for. And it came out as principled profit colon marketing that puts people first. And that book evolved into the book that I'm really proud of, my current book, Guerrilla Marketing to Heal the World. It, it took a few steps to get there. But uh, the interesting, funny piece of this story is that when my book was published in Spanish, this, the Mexican publisher used a title that translates as win-win marketing without having any idea that that was what I was originally going to call the book in English. And so your second tip? Oh, right. <laughs> there are five. Yeah. Okay. So the second one is to track your sources as you write. This is for nonfiction people. Keep the reference list. Copy the URLs into a spreadsheet. Know what page you're, re you're re uh, referring to them on. Do not have to create that later. It's a royal pain. Okay. And then the third one is that don't count on the book to give you direct income. For everybody who gets a six-figure advance, there are tens of thousands who get little or no advance, but understand what you can do with that book to open other doors with it. For me, being a guerrilla marketing author twice opens a lot more doors than just being an author. But even before that, I had a book with Simon & Schuster, I had one with Wiley, I had one with um, Stackpole and one with Chelsea Green. So those are names that people recognize and it's a credibility builder. But even if you're self-published, there's plenty of ways you can build that credibility with a book by using it to parlay into media interviews and speeches and all the rest of it. And then like, oh, he's spoken at the United Nations, whatever. Um, you can build that credibility. Um, to remember that every book has its own journey, its own story, and the things that worked for one may or may not work for another, even if you think they should. And a related piece to that is that do not assume that your audience is necessarily going to cross over. I did a book on having fun cheaply and a book on frugal marketing that came out in the same year. I thought there was going to be a huge crossover audience, and boy, was I wrong. There were, I don't know, 50 people who bought both books. <laughs> so um, tip number five is if you do a really excellent book, do not stint on the quality. You want something as good as coming out of New York. You can use that to get press. You can get endorsements just as if you had published with Random House. 
And I, I have had endorsements on self-published books from people like Jack Canfield, who co-created the Chicken Soup series, and Al Reese, who's one of the most respected marketing authors in the world, and a, a number of others. And uh, so that, that can be done. Um, and I have a bonus number six, because uh, I like to over-deliver. And that's that consider working with a professional who can really help you through these minefields, because it's a lot harder if you're going to reinvent the wheel for yourself on every step. I agree with you on that one. So what is the one thing you most misunderstood about being or becoming an author? I think this was something that, that really did shift, is that the idea that you can have more authors on the planet than readers was a shock to me. And many of the people I know who've self-published a book, they read one or two books a year, maybe, or they don't read any. So that disassociation between the writer and the idea that other people will read your book and that maybe you should read others is something that still shocks me. Now, there are plenty of writers, of course, who are voracious readers. I'm a voracious reader. I have in the past few years actually tracked it. And um, between 70, I think it was 77 and 89 books a year. This year, I'm probably going to do more like 60 because I used to use my exercise bike every single morning for 20 minutes and read. And now I'm doing every other morning because I'm joining my wife in a cardio class on the alternate mornings. So there's a little less space for reading, but I'm still going to probably read 60 books in 2022. Um, and so... You misunderstood this. I'm trying to track how that story uh, relates to what you misunderstood. Was that you used to think that authors had readers. more readers? I thought that authors were readers. And there's a lot of authors out there who are non-readers. And I think they're making a big mistake. I think authors who are readers are much better writers and write with a much clearer idea of who they're writing for and understand what else has been written in their subject area. I see. Thank you for clarifying. And then what is the primary thing that was the biggest reward for being an author or to being an author for you? I like to call it the magic triangle of expertise. It's a three-sided thing where each side supports the other two. Writing is one of those supports. Speaking is another. And consulting is a third. And I find that what will happen is somebody will read my book and contact me and say, oh, do you ever work one-on-one -on -one with clients? Or they'll say, do you ever speak in front of a public audience? Like, yeah, I do, let's talk. Um, and then on the other sides of it, if, if, if someone is a consulting client, they might say, you know, I think this organization that I'm part of might be really interested in what you do. Would you like to come and speak? So they all build on each other and, and seeing them as, as part of a holistic career as an information and idea sharer, as opposed to worrying about the specific delivery and like, oh, I'm only a writer, I'm only a speaker. I do have one of the books that's coming out next year is from a stroke survivor. She's not gonna be a speaker. But for most of us, it's a really good idea to look at all three sides of those triangles. Thank you so much, Shell. He's answered our question and he's uh, gotten information in store for you. He's also working on so many other projects. What website is it that people can go to and how can they find you? Going Beyond 
sustainability.com. And I should mention that I am planning to offer a mastermind group. I haven't really set it up yet, but within the next couple of months, I expect to release it for people who work in socially conscious, environmentally conscious businesses and feel like they've got a story to tell the world in the form of a book. So this will be a very focused mastermind group with the idea that these are all people working together on books and they'll probably be able to do some co-marketing with each other, et cetera, et cetera. Going Beyond Sustainability is my website for the intersection of social change in the environment with profitable business. I have other websites, but that's the one that I want you to go to. And uh, I also, because people are listening to you, Janine, I will give an offer that instead of the usual 15 minute free consultation, I will give 30. Thank you. That is so very generous of you because I know how, <laughs> I know how time deficient we all are some days. Yeah. yeah. So thank you so much for your time today and for being our spotlighted author, Shell. It's been a pleasure. It's wonderful to be here with you. And if you are an author or you know of an author that you would like us to spotlight, please visit our website at authorpodcasting.com where you will find the 99 Author Project listed. We talk to all authors from all walks of life as we build out book number 12, which is advice from authors to authors due out in 2023. And this is Janine Boland signing off with you today and all of us here at The Eight Gates that produces The Janine Boland Show. We wish you a wonderful week and we encourage you to get your message, your story, or your knowledge out into the world and make it a better place, just like you hear these authors doing that we're interviewing this year. We'll see you again next week. And until then, keep sharing what you know with others, keep shining that light that is you, and don't forget to go out today and just do something for yourself that's just plain fun. We'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to The Janine Boland Show. Be sure to subscribe to our show notes by going to thejanineboland.show.com where you'll find additional resources as well as the opportunity to sign up to receive our program in your email each week. Be sure to visit our sponsor at the8gates.com. 8